Bibles to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Last week, Psalm 96 was an invitation for all to sing to the Lord. Psalm 97 is a song of praise by the psalmist to the Lord. Psalm 97 picks up the topic or the subject that we had in Psalm 96, verse 13, which described the king coming to judge his enemies and to reward his people. Psalm 95, in Psalm 95, the emphasis was on God's people. And in Psalm 96, the emphasis was our attention. It focused on our attention on the nations of the world. That is to minister, to, to reach out to them. This Psalm 97 combines both subjects. That is the emphasis of God, on God's people and the attention on reaching the world for the gospel. And it tells us that Jehovah is the Lord most high in verse 9. And he has all things under his control. Now, Christians today, us believers, we see Jesus as God's exalted king. Now, this is another of one of the series of royal psalms from 93 to 99. And it has a particularly kind of end of the world tone to it, an apocalyptic tone to it in its description of God's final judgment on the wicked before he sets up his great kingdom. Now, the structure of the psalm goes like this. First of all, there's a call for the praise of God the king in verse 1. Second, there's a vision of the coming judgment of the wicked in verses 2 through 6. Third, a prophetic word about the end of idolatry in verses 7 through 9. Fourth, a promise of great joy for the righteous in verses 10 through 11. And last, a call for the praise of God the king in verse 12. The theme of this psalm is God, our awesome conqueror, is righteous and just. The author, unknown. The psalmist here in this psalm, he sings out his praises to God. And the reason is, is he is so blown away about all the wonderful things that God has done. And you know what? When we think about God's majesty and we think about his goodness to us, how can we not tell others about him? You know, and witnessing will come automatically when our hearts are full of appreciation for what he has done for us. God has chosen to use us. Think of that. He's chosen to use us to tell others about his wonders. You know, and we, we see creation. Praise God. You know, at, at, creation praises God. You know, as we see now spring coming close, you know, as I drive down the 71 to go home, the hills are so green and they're full of poppies. They're full of those beautiful purple flowers. I'm not sure. I think they're called lupine or something. To What is it? All right. There you go. My wife and I were trying to figure it out and we were looking it up, but we were close. But yeah. And, you know, it, it's it's the hills are just, you know, overflowing with the glory of God. The flowers, the beauty of the color and the butterflies we saw just all over the all over town for the last several weeks, you know, metamorphosis. They've turned into butterflies from cocoons. And again, it just it just screams the glory of God. Nature screams the glory of God. It just pours out from creation. How much more should should, you know, again, the glory of God, the praise of God, the praise for our God pour out from our lips. We need to ask ourselves, how are how well are we doing 
telling others about God's greatness. When was the last time, you know, we, you, witnessed to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ? Told them about how great and glorious he is. Because then that, that God, God saved us to do that, not just to go to church. He saved us to be a light to those around us. So let's begin now with Psalm 75, verse 1. Did I say 75? How about 97? Now, 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. The Lord reigns is the key phrase of the royal psalms. We see it in Psalm 93.1. The earth as a whole, it says, and its smallest part, it mentions here the isles. Let the earth and the isles, that is the smallest parts, the farthest coastlands, let them all join together in rejoicing at the hope of God's reign on earth. And God's reign here speaks about his sovereignty. God has absolute authority and rule over all of his creation. And, and it's an attribute of his deity. That if he didn't have total authority, think of it, God couldn't be God. If God didn't control everything, he couldn't be God. Sovereignty involves other attributes as well. And in order to be sovereign, God has to be omniscient. That is all-knowing. He has to be omnipotent. That is all-powerful. And he has to be totally free to do, whatever, to do whatever he pleases with no outside influence. There's no committee that influences. There's no counselors that give him advice. He is sovereign. He is, in the sense of his infinite wisdom, he makes all calls. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. So, Again, if God was limited in any of these areas, you know, omniscience, omnipotence, you know, he wouldn't be totally sovereign. And not only that, how could he be God Almighty? If God didn't know what was going on, he'd always be caught off guard. I mean, how, would, how could we trust him? I am so glad, oops, it's not in his vocabulary. Because then we'd be in trouble. If he wasn't omnipotent, he wouldn't be able to control everything. You know, if he wasn't totally free, whatever he did would be predetermined by some other will or some outside influence or by unavoidable circumstances. And yet the sovereignty of God is greater than any of the attributes that his sovereignty contains. A little thinking about this will show us why this is true. We might think of love as being a greater attribute than sovereignty. But you see, if it wasn't for God's sovereignty, he might love, but circumstances would come up to stop his love, making it useless to us. You see, if God was, could, if his love could be changed by circumstances, well, like, like we do, you know, we love when people are lovable, and when they're not, we, you know, when circumstances aren't to our favor, we stop loving. It's the same when it comes to matters that involve fairness. If God wasn't sovereign, fairness would be hindered and unfairness would win out. You know, that, that's, that's, that's the way we do things. In this world, we see a lot of unfairness. And that's why we hopefully look for and can't wait for Jesus to come back. But you know what? Until he does, the fact that God is sovereign, man, that is a big source of comfort to us, to God's people. Look at verses 2 through 6 now. Clouds and darkness surround him. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. These verses here, two through six, they describe scenes that are connected with the time. Remember when God gave the law of Moses, the law to, uh, uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai. At that time, we read that clouds and darkness surrounded him. And because they did, men uh, 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 might only get a sketchy idea and not such a good idea about God. But then righteousness and justice is says to be the foundation of his throne. And if men would look beyond appearances, they would understand God correctly and even recognize the purpose and the mystery of the symbols in which he appeared to them. Now, the dark clouds that surround God symbolize his unapproachable holiness in the ability in the inability of people to find him on their own. You see, if he didn't cover up his glory, nobody could stand before his shining holiness and glory. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, notice, dwelling in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Exodus 33, 20, God said to Moses, You cannot see my face. No man shall see me and live. And then we read in Exodus 19, 16 through 18, listen to what it says there. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered to him by voice. Think of it. It was a terrifying scene. The point is, is that an appearance of the true and living God is overwhelming. So overwhelming, it was to the point of fear and trembling on the part of the worshiper. When God appeared on Mount Sinai, everybody trembled. Again, it was a terrifying scene. It was terrifying to the people. That's why the people said, Moses, you go up there and speak to God. We'll wait down here. Even Moses himself in Hebrews 12, 21 says he was scared to death. Says, I am, Moses, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Isaiah also. In Isaiah 6, 5, it says, woe is me. I'm undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel, it says, fell on his face before God. Daniel, he says, my, Daniel says, my countenance was changed. That is, his face turned pale. Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 3.16, when I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones. That means my legs gave away beneath me and I trembled in myself. Hebrews 12, 29 tells us our God is a consuming fire. See that you don't refuse him who speaks. You see, this means we must never take God lightly. And you know what? We talk too lightly about God. And sometimes we kind of look at God as the, as the guy next door. And the Jews, they had such great respect for God, they wouldn't even say his name. 
when somebody, talk, uh, when somebody takes God lightly or, or for granted, when they're approaching him, it's not a sign that, that you know, they're, they're, they're close to him. It's not a sign that they're close to him as they might think they are, but that they really don't know God at all because if they did, they'd approach him with great reverence. Those who approach God approach him joyfully, but they approach him with a deep reverence. They don't approach him fearfully. They approach him joyfully as well, but it's with a deep reverence because of who he is. They approach him with a great awe, the greatest of awe and wonder. And the psalmist said in 95, 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Verse 7. The psalmist goes on to say, Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. The point of verse 7 is that Jehovah is as verse 2 and 6 describes him, which he is. All right? And then he's unique. He's like no others in his qualities, and he's the only true and living God. Now, notice it says in verse 7, it says, Worship him, all you gods. Now, how can gods be called to worship him? Because we've, we've learned earlier that gods were nothing but the creation of men's imagination. They're nothing but idols, so they can't worship God. Paul said that, that, that gods were nothing more than demons. So how can we think that demons would ever praise the God that they hate and have rebelled against? Well, the call to all gods to worship him could be a call to all the nations who worship idols with the meaning, all you who serve idols, worship him. That is, turn from these false gods to the true and the living God. Or it could be a call to the rulers of the judges of the people. Or gods could refer to angels, which seems to be the popular opinion. This could be the verse referred to in Hebrews 1, 6 that says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And angels do worship God. They praise him without ceasing. But the problem isn't there. The problem is with the people who worship the idols. Even though they know idols are nothing in the world and that there's only one true and living God. Now today's idols are self, their power, their riches, their fame, and, and there's many others. You see, whatever you give priority to in your life, that's your idol. And people are continually selling out, for their, selling out their soul to get these idols. Sometimes even Christians serve them as well. So why do we choose to serve these things that aren't really anything, that aren't really God's? It's probably because we spend so little time with him. Now think about this. Don't you think it's foolish for us to have the word of God, the Bible, to belong to or to go to a Bible teaching church to have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts who has given us, who's been given to us by the Lord to help us understand the Bible and to give us power to obey the Bible and to help us have victory over sin and its hold on our life and then know so little about God. Paul said in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. 
The word of Christ refers to the revelation that he brought into the world, which is scripture. Peace and thankfulness, as well as unity and love, they're all, they're all required virtues. They just pour out of a mind. Those things pour out of a mind that's controlled by Scripture. You see, if Scripture is dwelling in you richly and, it, and, it's, and it's controlling your mind, peace, thankfulness, unity, and love, which are all required virtues, they will just pour out of your, out of your being. You know what? Scripture in, Scripture out. The word dwell in Colossians 3.16 means to live in. Or to be at home. Is the word of God dwelling in your heart this evening? Is it at home in your heart? Paul in Colossians 3.16 is calling on all believers to let the word of Christ move into your heart. To let it be at home in your heart. The words dwell richly could also be translated abundantly or extravagantly rich. The truths of scripture should spread through every part of the believer's life. And Scripture, the truth of Scripture, should, should rule every thought, every word, and every action through every fiber of our being. The Word dwells in us. The Word dwells in us when we hear it. The Word dwells in us when we handle it. The Word dwells in us when we hide it in our heart. The Word dwells in us when we hold it fast. But in order to do those things, the Christian has to read it, they have to study it, they have to live it. To let the word of Christ <clears throat> dwell richly in us is, to, <clears throat> is identical to being filled with the Holy Spirit. The word in the heart and mind is how the Holy Spirit changes our will. And it's clear that these two ideas are the same because the passages that follow each are so much alike. For example, Colossians 3.18 through chapter 4.1 is a shorter version of Ephesians 5.19 through chapter 6, verse 9. It shows us that the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as the result of letting the Word dwell in one's life richly. So you see, the two are the same, it's the same spiritual reality, but it's seen from two different sides. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by His Word. And to have the Word dwelling in us richly is to be controlled by His Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit is the author and the power of the Word, the words are identical. They, the psalmist said in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. He also said in 119.49, Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. Psalm 119.50, the psalmist says, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Psalm 119.104, the psalmist says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Notice that, through the word of God, if it's dwelling in us richly, we will hate every false way. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 165, great peace, and I love this verse, great peace have those who love your law, nothing causes them to stumble. What the psalmist is saying, that your peace and your joy in the Lord is not dependent on other people's attitudes. Great peace have those who love your word. Nobody can cause them to stumble. But so many times we allow other people to cause us to stumble. Verse 8. 
Can I read verse 7? Yes, no? Okay, verse 8. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. The psalmist now talks about the righteous judgment of God. Zion, or Jerusalem, and the surrounding villages, they're rejoicing. Why? Because they're happy God has intervened in history to set up His righteous rule over the whole earth. Now, we don't know what the historical reference of this verse is, but the total fulfillment of this vision will be when Jesus returns and sets up his millennial kingdom on the earth. And this will be the only time that there will be perfect justice on the earth because Christ will be ruling. There's no such thing right now as justice on the earth, which is pretty obvious. We don't need anybody to tell us that. We can see it. Today, people are cheated. They're oppressed. They're wronged. And the guilty seem to go free. But when Jesus come back, comes back, everything will be reversed, everything will be changed, everything will be made right. Verse 9. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So the psalmist says, For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. And that's why we rejoice to see the idols done away with. Because there's only one God. And we rejoice to see all mankind bowing before his throne because there's only one God. There can't be any other gods. There can't be another God. He is, always has been, always will be over all. It says he's exalted far above all gods. Jehovah isn't just over Judea. He's over the whole earth. He's not exalted over men only, but over everything that can be called God. And the day is coming when all men are going to understand this truth and they're going to give God the glory that's due to him and him alone. Paul said in Romans 14, 11, every knee is going to bow to him. Every tongue is going to confess and give praise to God. Verse 10. You who love the Lord, notice, hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Hear those in this time, here, those, those who are still living in bad times, they're encouraged to hang on to their profession, hang on to their faith, knowing that God is going to stay faithful to them and God's going to protect them as they do. Remember in Second Chronicles fifteen twelve, it said, the Lord is with you while you are with him. That is, the Lord is with you to accept you, to protect you, to assist you, and to bless you as long as you are with him. His presence with them is always based on them being with him. How are we with him? In the sense of loving him, believing in him, and obeying him. And the psalmist here tells them to do two things. In verse 10, he says, hate evil. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, in Scripture, the term evil is used in two senses. Evil can mean calamity and wrongdoing. We can only hate evil when it stands for wrongdoing. But it's necessary to carefully know the difference between hating the one who's doing the wrong and hating the wrongdoing. We never hate the wrongdoer, but we do hate the wrong that's done. Hating the wrongdoer is never right. Hating the wrong is always right. We are to hate even our own wrong, especially our own wrongdoing. And we're to hate other people's wrongdoing. We're to, again, I've said it before, we are to hate the things that God hates. 
And of course, we're to love the things that God loves. How can we not? How can we do any different and then claim to be a child of God? Now, to hate sin, or I should say, to hate is to shun. To hate is to shun. And it's a strong word. It applies to something found unpleasant in the mouth and as a result, cast it out. In other words, to hate something, to shun something is like tasting something terrible in your mouth. And what's the first? You you cast it out. That's what we're to do with evil. We're to hate it. We're to shun it. We're to cast it out like some terrible thing that we're tasting in our mouth. It was said about Job that he was an upright man. But in Job 1, 1, it says he feared God and he shunned evil. He cast it out of his mouth in a sense. To hate is also to depart from evil. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 14, he tells us to depart from evil and to do good. To hate is to abhor. Paul in Romans 12, 9 tells us to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So you see, if you really want to please God, it will happen in you You know, when you bring your desires in line with God's desires. We can't please God if we love evil. We can't please God if we hate good. We have to be in line with God's desires. And you know that prayer that that we hear so often that God will give you the desires of of your heart? It is so used out of of context sometimes. Oh, you know, I really want this house. And I've, oh, brother, pray, and, and God will give you, the Bible says he'll give you the desires of your heart. Oh, I really want this. I really, oh, I really want that. Hey, God's word says he'll give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, but is it is God's desire for you? My desires must be in line with God's desires. And when they are, God will bless it. We need to remember that. My heart has to beat with God's heart. I have to love what God loves and hate what God hates. If you don't hate the actions of people who take advantage of others, if you respect people who only look out for themselves, or if you envy those who who get ahead any way they can, you know, uh, taking advantage of others, hurting others, then your main desire in life isn't to please God. Jesus said this, He said, I always do those things that please him, the Father, John 8, 29. And you know what? So should we. If we claim to be a son of God, we should always do those things that please the Father. We have to learn God's, to learn, we have to learn to love God's ways. And we have to learn to hate every kind of evil, not just the obvious sins, but also the socially accepted ones, the ones that this world says is okay, the ones that the, 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 the laws of the land pass and say it's legal to do. If it's not legal, if it's not scriptural according to God's word, hey, we have to hate that too. So many, it's even Christians, because the law says it's legal. <laughs> they say it's okay. No, we... we We live by a higher standard. That's the word of God. We have to believe it and we have to live it. Verse 11. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. In other words, light shines on the godly and joy on those whose hearts are right. If we're going to, you know, if you were walking through the woods, let's take the woods, for example, or any dark place at night, 
And let's say you weren't familiar with where you were going. You would, you would have, or you would normally take some light of some kind, of, maybe a flashlight or a lantern, you know, to, to light up your way. Why? So that you don't trip over rocks or bump into trees or walk off cliffs or into streams. This life that, that, that we're living in, this life is like walking through a huge forest of evil. You know, I call it, I call it Satan's playground. You know, it, it's Satan's playground. It, it's our battlefield. But the Bible can be our light to show us the way ahead so that we don't stumble as we walk. The Bible, the scriptures, God's word shows us the things that would trip us up. It shows us the things that would cause us to fall, the things that would cause us to get hurt. And it will show us the falsehoods and the philosophies of this world. That's why we need to study the Bible so that we will be able to see our way clear enough to stay on the right path. Again, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Two familiar biblical uh, pictures are combined in this verse. First, life is a path. It helps us uh, follow the right path. I'm sorry, life is a path. And then God's word is the light. The path and the light. And the light that is what helps us follow the right path. See, in the psalmist's day, the, the, the old world didn't have flashlights. They didn't have lanterns like we have today. The people would carry out little clay dishes with oil in them. And the little oil lamp would light up the path. And, you know, it would only light up enough for, to you, for you to see the next step. It didn't light up in a distance so you could see everything before you. It only lit up one step at a time. It only showed you one step at a time. We don't see the whole path at one time in our life. Why? We walk by faith. We don't know where the next step is going to take us, but we do know that God is leading We walk by faith when we follow the word of God. And each time we obey the word of God, God shows us the next step. And in due time, we will get to the appointed destination. Now, the world tells us that that we're living in an enlightened age. (laughs) Oh, with all the, the advanced technology and medical advancements and diversity. But in reality, we are living in a dark, dark And only God's light can guide us in the right direction. And only obedience to the word of God keeps us walking in that light. Verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. So hating evil leads to rejoicing, which we're commanded to do. We're commanded to hate evil. The psalm tells us about the Lord coming in majesty and in righteousness to judge the world. And here at the end of the psalm, the psalmist remembers the judgment and the holiness that characterizes it. And he calls all righteous men to rejoice. Will we hate evil and and rejoice in the Lord? If we really know love and we really know God, we will. We will hate evil and we will rejoice in the Lord. Do you know God? Do you really love God? Is this righteous, awesome God of the psalm your God tonight? Now, we don't naturally hate evil. That's why before we were born again, sin didn't bother us. We loved it. As a matter of fact, in the the natural man, he loves evil. 
We naturally love sin. We're fascinated by wrong. And you know what? We, we normally don't want to let go of our sins and the practicing of those sins. But you see, we have to learn to hate sin, and we will if, if we're getting to know God. Because you see, the closer you get to God, the further away from sin you want to be. If we don't hate sin, we will hate God more and more. And we get a picture of this in the way the multitudes re, uh, reacted to Jesus when he was here on earth. Some people saw Christ's holiness and they learned to hate sin. They became his disciples. Others saw him and they hated him. Why? Because they ex he exposed their sin as sin. They eventually crucified him for it. If you love God and you're getting to know him, you will hate sin just because it's contrary to the character of the one that you love. In closing, how do you know if you are really coming to that place where you hate evil? Richard Sibbs, or Sibbs, who was a great Puritan, often thought, how can we examine ourselves usefully? He observed that since hating sin is a sign of our conversion, it's important that we know if we truly hate it. He said, the way to know that we hate evil is this. Number one, if our hatred of sin is universal. In other words, the, the one who truly hates sin, hates sin of every kind. He said, secondly, if our hatred is fixed, our hatred of sin is fixed, there should be no appeasing, no tolerating, no comforting of sin, but rather an abolishing of the thing that's hated. He said, third, if our hatred of sin is a more rooted affection than anger, he said, anger can be appeased, it can be comforted, but hatred remains and opposes the hated sin. Fourth, he says, if we hate sin, he says, wherever it's found, we know that we are coming to that place where we hate evil. If we hate sin, wherever it's found, we must hate sin in others, but especially in ourselves. He said, we know that we're coming to that place where we hate evil if we hate the greatest sin in the greatest measure. In other words, if we hate sin, if we hate all sin in a just proportion, that is not being offended by the slight flaw in another while overlooking a much greater offense in ourselves. And lastly, he said, we know if we're coming to hate evil, if we can be reproved or rebuked for sin and not get angry. Oh, how many times have you rebuked somebody? And even in love. Oh, and they get angry. Oh, you're judging me. No, I'm not. If we really hate sin, he said, we'll become whatever help we, we will welcome whatever help we can get in dealing with it and driving it out of our lives. The Proverbs 15, 32 says, he who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. And again, finishing with verse 12, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Notice, we are commanded to do this. The psalm started with a call to the people of the whole earth to rejoice in God's rule in verse 1. It ends here with a call for us to lead the way in the worship of God. How can we dare not do it? Being God's people. You see, if we don't praise God joyfully, who's going to? We're his children. The world's not going to praise him. If we don't praise him now, when will we? Father, thank you for this, again, beautiful psalm. Lord, we thank you for your, gosh, Lord, your word is so, so amazing, Lord.
And Father, the more I read it and the more I study it, the more beautiful it becomes, God. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, God. Thank you, God, that he just speaks and, and Father, just reveals the mighty word of God to me as well as to others, Lord. Father, help us to try not to live without your word, Lord. God, help us to, to as Paul said, to, to let it dwell in us richly, Lord. Father, to let it find a home in our hearts, Lord. To let it be welcome in our hearts and in our life, God. Lord, let it be just be so, uh, God, important to us, God, more than anything else, Lord. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for, Father, sending your son. Lord, we thank you for coming. And Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us more about our wonderful Lord and our wonderful Savior. And Lord, we pray now that you would just bless our fellowship, Lord. And, and Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, it appears that everybody uh, is familiar, Lord. And Father, but if there's anyone that doesn't know you and if anybody needs prayer or has questions, God, uh, may they stay behind and, and see us afterwards, God. But Lord, may you bless them. May you be with them the rest of this week, God. And God, may you just, again, reveal yourself to us, Lord, uh, through everything that you would speak to us through, Lord. We see it in creation, God. But Lord, may we be those that overflow praise from our mouths to others around us, God. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh,